before I started tonight, I wanted to uh, just put my Bible somewhere, because there's no room. Um, do another plug for a book, um, which again I haven't warned uh, Philip about, so he won't have it on the bookstall, but he can get it if necessary. Uh, this is a book called Graham Bainon, Last Things First, Living in the Light of the Future, published by IVP. And um, it's an excellent book, and uh, I've, I've been reading it and basing, and a lot of my sermon tonight is based on this book. It's a really easy read. It's all about the end times or the, the, coming, the second coming of Jesus. Um, uh, and um, it's been really interesting to read that and be encouraged by that. It's encouraging, it's practical, it's easy to read. If you're confused by any of those issues around the second coming or the end times, then this is a good book to read. So if you enjoy my sermon, then buy the book because you're obviously interested in the subject and you want to learn more. If you don't enjoy my sermon then uh, buy the book anyway, because it probably says a lot better than I have. Okay. Let's uh, pray, shall we? Father God, as we uh, come to uh, discuss this subject of the uh, second coming of Christ, we, uh, we confess, Lord, that we don't always look forward to that day. Lord, we pray that as I speak this evening, your word would speak to us powerfully, and you would set in our hearts an expectation that the Lord will come again, and he'll come again soon, and may we look forward to that time. Amen. So, um, predicting the future has always been a bit of a dodgy business, isn't it, really? I remember when I was young, there seemed to be a couple of certainties in life. One was that new technology would mean that there was no need for any paper in the office anymore. Do you remember that? The paperless office. There's another thing as well. Technology would also make us richer and would mean that a lot of us wouldn't have any work to do because technology was doing it for us. And we wouldn't need to because society would be so rich anyway. So we'd all have huge amounts of leisure time. We wouldn't know what to do with it. All of that is unless we were hit by a nuclear missile, which also seemed like a, a fairly certainty at the time. But there's still plenty of paper sitting on the floor of my office. And I haven't been hit by a missile. And strangely, I don't seem to have any leisure time at all. And that's probably true for all of us here who are, who are, who are fortunate enough to have work. So how could it all have gone so wrong? When it comes to Christians looking into the future, sometimes there are some good reasons why we might not want to bother as well. People might say, for example, well, what, what will be will be. Nothing is going to change whether we know about it or not. Well, other people might say, well, if you, if you get into that sort of stuff, you become a little bit weird and wacky. And it's very easy to laugh at some of those Christians, isn't it, who've, uh, I don't know, predicted with certainty that the future, that the day of the Lord will come on a particular date. Some people might think, well, it's just so complicated that there's no point really debating about it or stirring it up. Uh, for the sake of it, Paul, uh, Paul tells us not to get involved in useless debates, doesn't he? We should just leave that to students at 2 o'clock in the morning. Others might say that, well, if it's all in the future, it makes no difference to me and the way I live now. It's totally irrelevant. And it doesn't help, in a way, that we leave the subject until the first Sunday of Advent, once a year. It's almost as if we're sort of pushing it to one side and then getting it all covered in one evening for the rest of the year. I hope that's not true here because we uh, 
do talk about it as it comes up in other scriptures. But when you start to think about it, there are several very good reasons why we should be thinking and talking about the future. For one thing, the Bible speaks about it rather a lot. Every book of the New Testament, apart from two or three of the very short letters, speaks about Jesus' return or some other aspect of God's future for us. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus mentions the future uh, around 20 times. Not only that, but when the, men- when the future is mentioned in the Bible, it's usually crucial to the argument being made. It's foundational to the argument. So the Sermon on the Mount's teaching about how we should live now would probably fall completely flat in our minds if it weren't for the teaching about the future that goes with it. And what the Bible says about the future also tells us and reminds us of the big plans that God has for us to undo all the messiness of our world and of our lives. And if we don't look at what the Bible has to say about the future, then we'll probably end up believing something else, won't we? Whether we get that from some kind of um, hearsay or a dodgy blog on the internet. But finally, our consideration of the future is simply vital to the way we live our lives today. Simply because it's not about rules or examples to imitate, but it's about talking about the deep motivations of our heart. C.S. Lewis reminds us in his book, Mere Christianity, he says, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. So let's not fall into the same trap. So Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is a chapter of the Bible that can be very confusing. And there's a similar chapter in Mark 13 as well, which says very similar things. The key to getting to grips with the passage is probably the disciples' question in verse 3 of chapter 24. You see, in verse 2, Jesus says, he looks at the mighty temple in Jerusalem, and he says to his disciples, I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And then later on, the disciples ask him in verse 3, he sa- they say, when will this happen? And when will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You see, notice that here there are actually two questions, not one. The first refers back to Jesus' words about the temple being destroyed. And that's something that actually happened in AD 70. The second part of their question refers to the coming of the end of the age. So, Weber, if we can have the uh, first slide up. We need to just think about the structure of this chapter a little bit. So verses 4 to 14 deal with events that have nothing to do with the end times. And this, it may surprise you to learn, is where we talk about the wars and the rumours of the wars, the famines and the earthquakes and all those other things. But actually, those are just normal way of life. They're normal things that happen in this fallen world. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are the end of anything after all those things have been happening for the last 2,000 years. Verses 15 to 25 deal with signs foretelling the destruction of the temple, I believe, by the Romans. So this is a time when it says to flee to the hills away from that catastrophe unfolding in Jerusalem. In contrast, verses 26 
to 31 refer to the coming of the Son of Man, which will be a sudden event, like lightning, followed immediately by the darkening of the sky, a loud trumpet call and the gathering of the chosen ones. Verses 32 to 35 returns to the temple, making it clear that its destruction will happen in this generation. And Jesus says, as you know, when a fig tree is going to bear fruit, then you will know that this is about to happen. So it's a prediction of the future, something that took place in AD 70, and Jesus says you will know when this is about to happen. But verses 36 to 44, which are the verses that Martin read to us tonight, return to the topic of the end of the age and make it clear that there will be no warning. There will be no warning. So looking at verse 36, the time will be unknown. No one knows about the day or the hour Not the angels, not even me, says Jesus. The only correct answer to when the end of the world might be is God knows. And even then, it's only God the Father, this verse says, because the incarnate Jesus has voluntarily given up this knowledge. So there'll be no ten-minute warning, flash on our television screens, no air raid sirens, no time to escape to our nuclear shelters, or even into the hills. We can take that down. Can we take that down? For time being. But there's so many people. There's so, so many stories of this uh, going wrong, isn't it, for God's people? My favourite, as uh, mentioned in this book here, is the uh, story of a church in Sydney, Australia. And some years ago, they predicted that Jesus was going to come back on the 19th of October at precisely 2 a.m. in the morning. On the night in question, a crowd of about 300 people gathered outside the church to see what would happen, whether it would come true or not. About 2 a.m., a cheer went up, the rain poured down, and nothing else happened. Eventually, the members of the church who were meeting inside the church building began to emerge from the building and were met by crowds of hecklers outside. Later on television, a reporter said, the church people, they were so upset, you know, they were crying. This one guy was just broken-hearted, crying his eyes out. And so, of course, I went over, I put my arm around him, and I said, cheer up, mate, it's not the end of the world. (laughs) Now, it's easy to laugh at such people, isn't it? But actually, these people got one thing right, haven't they? And that is that they are truly expectant in a way that I suspect many of us are not. Verses 37 to 41 teach us, since that time is unknown many people will be caught unawares. Hands up who's seen the film Evan Almighty. Oh, there's quite a few who are prepared to admit this guilty fact. (laughs) Evan Almighty is one of those films I didn't expect to like, and if you've seen it, there is much to dislike within it. But hey, it's a great depiction of the kind of ridicule that Noah and his family might have faced when they were building the ark in the days before the flood. So people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Or in Almighty, people were voting in Congress and reporting things on television. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. You see, no warning, just normal life, normal life, normal life. Two men in the office, two women out at lunch, and then one will be taken and the other will be left behind. Which is why in verses 42 to 44, it says that Christian disciples must keep watch, stay awake, be ready, 
when the day of the Lord comes. So the question is, how do we keep watch for the day of the Lord? Well, firstly, I think we must wait patiently. You see, we can't just drop everything and wait for the Lord's return. That should be uh, fairly self-evident by now from what we've already said. But we don't know when the Lord is coming back. So we can't stay up all night like that householder might have done, waiting for the thief, who has kind you know, waiting for the thief, because the thief hasn't left a note saying, I'm going to call at 2 a.m. on Thursday evening. Nor can we be like the servant constantly scanning the horizon to see when the master might be coming home. No, we need to get on with daily life, whether that means going to sleep or looking after the house carefully or investing the master's resources correctly, as we see in some of the parables that follow this passage. See, we need to get on, get on with life. Nevertheless, we must still be ready, verse 44 says. In other words, we must wait, but we must wait patiently. But secondly, we must also wait expectantly. And this is the bit that I personally find most challenging, I think. Do we truly believe that the best is yet to come? Do we, do we live all of life knowing that Jesus could come at any time? He could come today. This evening, we might not make it home to our houses tonight. In other words, are we waiting expectantly? Or have we become like that servant in verse 48 who says, oh, the master's stayed away a long time. There's plenty of time to do the washing up and cut the lawn. I'll just eat and drink and be merry for a while. So why don't we wait expectantly? Well, sometimes I think it's simply that we're enjoying ourselves too much. I don't mean that in a sinful way necessarily. Sometimes we can be distracted by good things. We enjoy being with our family. We want to see our children grow up. We've got unfulfilled ambitions. Perhaps we want to finish college or we want to get married, whatever it may be. So it might help to remind ourselves perhaps of what the second coming of Jesus actually means for us. Sometimes I I sit at my breakfast table trying to eat my Weetabix while my children are supposed to be getting ready for school out in the hall. I call out, don't forget to clean your teeth. Miriam, do your hair. Don't forget your violin. Sometimes you can hear a bit of squabbling breaking out. Alex laughed at me, or Lucas is jumping on me. I call through more commands. I tell one to say sorry, another to stop jumping, another just ignore them and get on with putting their shoes. Things go quiet for a while and then tempers flare once more. I try to call through more commands, but eventually I realise I have to get up, leave the Weetabix to go soggy, and go out into the hall to get everything sorted out. What happens then? Well, I try to investigate what's been happening, and I bring my parental authority to bear on the situation. That might involve punishing one child. It might involve rewarding another. But now, at least I'm personally present in the hall with them, intervening for peace and bringing justice. (laughs) At least as best as I can. And there are times in every parent's life when you have to say, I don't know what happened and I don't know who to believe, but whatever it is, I want it to stop. In effect, that moment is the day of the dad. The day of the dad has arrived. One day we will have the day of the Lord. God will step into what we all know is a bad situation. He will bring his kingly authority to bear 
and he will bring about peace and justice. Not imperfectly as I do as a father, but perfectly as only he can. So let's remind ourselves of what we can look forward to on the day of the Lord. Firstly, that God's kingdom will come. It's a huge theme throughout the Old Testament, isn't it? That God is king. This is his creation and he rules over it. The problem is that people have rebelled and tried to rule their own lives, rejecting God as their king. And yet the Old Testament always looks forward to a time described in Zechariah 14, verse 9, for example, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord and his name the only name. It's a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will swear by the name of the Lord, Isaiah 45. Secondly, the king will be our saviour, God's redeeming king. As no doubt we shall hear at Christmas time, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever, Isaiah 9. He will come and he will save God's people. Thirdly, some people will be judged. God has promised consistently throughout the Bible that he will set injustice straight and he will judge all evil. Psalm 96 says he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in all his faithfulness. And fourthly, there will be a new covenant, a new promise to his people. So Jeremiah 31 says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And the prophets of Ezekiel and Joel both tell us that the Spirit will be poured out on his people so that they will be given a new heart, a heart for God, not just rule-based obedience. And fifthly, the whole of creation will be renewed. The world was created good. It wasn't supposed to contain all the disasters, the famine, the ill health, and the death that we know. In the future, the day of the Lord, we have promises like, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, Isaiah 65. And Isaiah 11 says, The wolf will lie with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. And all of this is due to the coming of the Saviour King. Of course, once we've got all of that sorted out in our minds, we can fall into another trap. Because we can read Mark 1, verse 15, for example, where, where Jesus says, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. And when the Spirit fell on the disciples in Acts 2, Peter immediately says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. So it's true that the kingdom has come. We are already in the last days. And we have been for the last 2,000 years or so. Ever since Jesus lived, died, rose again and ascended back into heaven. The new age has come. And therefore it's tempting for some Christians to say, well, we should never feel sick again. Well, there should be no more problems, there should be no more tears. We should have the power to work all kinds of miracles in the name of Jesus. And if that's not your daily experience, then there's obviously something wrong with your face. With your faith, not your face, your faith. (laughs) You don't have sufficient faith. And yet the reality is that although this new age has come, the old age hasn't ended, has it? We're living in a time when, of two ages, when the old has, is still carrying on 
and new has begun, but the old is overlapping with the new, and we live somewhere in the square box in the middle, the now and not yet. So Jesus is Lord, but people can choose to ignore him. We're adopted into, our, into God's family, but our relationship with God is still not yet perfect. Our relationship with Jesus is real, but it's far from complete. We've been redeemed already, but our final redemption, when we're completely rescued from sin and set free from sin, is still to come. The devil has been defeated and disarmed, but still has influence in the world and can cause us harm. Christians are new creations now, but we still have to fight against sin, we, need to fight, we suffer disease, and we decay. On the other hand, there are some things that we have now, completely. So we have complete forgiveness now. We've already been judged and found innocent. We are justified now. When Jesus returns, we will no, be no more forgiven than we are already. We're no more declared innocent than we are already. And as Christians, we already have the Holy Spirit. And he's already at work in us to lead us to live holy lives, obeying God in every aspect of our lives. So therefore, we mustn't fall into the opposite trap, which perhaps we are more prone to do, which is live with so little expectation that we hardly believe that the kingdom has arrived at all. And we don't expect God to do anything in our lives. So we need to be patient, but we need to be expectant as well. So how do we get this balance right? With Colossians chapter 3, our first reading that we had tonight, says this. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So when Paul says, think about things above, it's not just meditate about how great heaven is. Paul means, think about your true identity in Christ. Remember that you are under the lordship of Jesus. You are adopted into God's family. You are renewed by his spirit. And you need to live out who you are. Because it's this new identity which is our key motivation for living differently now as we wait for the coming of the Lord. And we need to do that with joy. Michael Green, the evangelist, put it like this. He said, Christians are to watch. Not like astronomers for a telescope or guards watching a CCTV screen. But Christians are to watch like lovers who can't wait for another glimpse of their beloveds. See, aren't God's plans of salvation amazing? The total renewal of creation, the rule of the world, a new covenant, a new promise to live out, and our knowing him face to face. So do we really believe that the best is yet to come? Sometimes we uh, think about our glorious future, don't we, as something crossed between an interminable church surface, forever playing a 1980s chorus called Holy, Holy, Holy. 
a cross between that and the bling capital of the world, where everything is made of gold and hung with jewels. But actually, Jesus' return, the new heaven and the new earth, will be far, far better than that. It means that the wicked will finally be held to account. It means that all our good deeds will finally be recognised. And all these things will be made new and perfect. Let's pray. Lord, as we look forward to the end of time when your Son, Jesus Christ, returns to earth in glory, we pray that you would set our minds on those things, not on earthly things. Help us to live our lives as, as, we, as we should, as Christians adopted into your family, renewed by your Spirit, living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In the name of Christ. Amen.